when I think of the word resilience, I think of just kind of like battening down the hatches and just like powering through. But I like that you brought up, Jace, the idea that it's like something that bends Mm, and doesn't break, but then comes back. And I think that's a really, really important distinction to make philosophically and visually. If you're happy with the same old ways of dating, if you enjoy sucking at communication, and you have no desire to improve your romantic life, then our podcast might not be for you. But you want some out-of-the-box ideas to deepen your current relationships, broaden your sexual horizons, develop a better understanding of yourself, or learn more about non-monogamy, then you've come to the right place. I'm Jace. I'm Emily. And I'm Dedeker. And this is the Multiamory Podcast. On this episode of the Multi-Amory Podcast, we're talking about resilience in relationships and in life. Difficulty is all around us, whether it's in the form of the death of a loved one, the loss of a job, or the end of a relationship. But our ability to get through these challenging times is incredibly important. And this is a huge topic, so we'll give a brief overview in this episode. But we'll talk about resilience as a psychological term, how to gain resilience in your own life, and some caveats around the topic, and just sort of, you know, some more wholesome take-home multi-amory <laughs> messages for you. Wholesome take-home multi-amory <laughs> messages. Do on this show? Apparently. I no, do. Yeah, it is we're, now. we're the most wholesome ever. We're fortified with vitamins and minerals. Indeed. Mm, yeah. No, I love it. Uh, yeah, this is an interesting topic. It came to me first from a different podcast, um, just somebody talking about it. And obviously we hear about the word resilience just in everyday life, but it's not necessarily something that I thought of as like a psychological thing that people did a lot of studies on. And yet when you look into it, there's just tons and tons of studies and tons of things out there about resilience. And I think it's very important to people, especially right now with things like climate change, um, even our like economic disparity becoming bigger and bigger. And then things like, I don't know, just in this country, we have a a rough president, a rough time right now with that. And yeah, sometimes things suck. Yeah. yeah, yeah, for sure. It feels like a lot of things are a little rough right now, just in the world. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, so before y'all researched this episode, when you said the word resilience, what did you think? Like what came to mind? Yeah. Um, I mean, well, this isn't fair because I, I did learn some stuff about this already oh. in the in the positive psychology course that right. i was doing uh, that's um, cool this is one of those yeah, this they, talk, is... they talk about resilience a lot in positive psychology mm. right yeah yeah exactly so i already kind of knew but i did want to kind of think about this question of like what's the definition of the word and you know what we didn't even look that up but <laughs> but you know resilience is like the ability of something to take a strain and not break right yeah. like if i'm thinking physically of like a resilient uh, you know, resilient what sword <laughs> or resilient building? I think or of a sword. Yeah, resilient anything. Yeah, I think of like waterproof coating. Oh, okay. Something that yeah. is that's the image that comes to mind for some reason. Because to me, the image is about like bending and not breaking, like bending and coming back to its original shape. But, interesting. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. Yeah. I think it, that's just what I thought about resilience was that I thought about myself as a resilient person because I had heard the word being tossed around so much just in uh, relation to humans and to 
those out there who could kind of bounce back from something that was difficult in their lives. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I just looked up the definition here, and it's either the capacity to recover quickly from difficulties, mm-hmm. which is kind of what we're talking about in this episode. Yeah. But the second definition is is actually, I was quite close, the ability of a substance or object to spring back into shape, like elasticity. There you go. So nylon is excellent in wearability and resilience. Ah, yes. <laughs> nylon. <laughs> yeah. Is that something that you use when you're rock climbing? Nylon? Like nylon ropes and stuff yeah, like exactly. that? Yeah, uh, exactly. I guess so. I think huh? so, yeah. Oh, do you? I think so. I believe so, Yeah. It, it, I'm sure there's somebody many out there materials now. Tell tell us that we're wrong, but yes, <laughs> it, it, that seems potentially right. So right. Uh, okay, so we read this New Yorker article, and I really liked what it had to say here. It said, "If you are lucky enough to never experience any sort of adversity, we won't know how resilient you are. It's only when you are faced with obstacles, stress, and other environmental threats that resilience or the lack of it emerges. Do you succumb or do you surmount?" That's interesting. And it, it, it this article talked a lot about different research that was done um, on the subject, uh, specifically on kids. And mm-hmm. so, yeah, that, I think, is an interesting point that some people do grow up very privileged, I guess. I mean, even us in the United States, in a lot of instances, grow up very privileged in comparison to a country, other countries. Yeah. Right. And right. so I think that that's something to think about here. Yeah, it is interesting that there is a like a huge body of research out there specifically on resilience as a phenomenon, which is what makes it so interesting. And especially a lot of research on kids and like, mm. why are some kids more resilient than others? I know that I've definitely, just speaking anecdotally, you know, seen some kids, you know, some friends of mine who when they were kids grew up like extremely privileged yeah, and seemed to like, then as soon as they hit the real world, seemed to just like kind of fall apart, you know? Mm. Um, and, and so that is the interesting thing is, is there's a lot of research, you know, kind of trying to track, like, is it based on being exposed to more suffering or more hardships early on that like, then it's a, a th- thing that gets built up or things like that. Um, the interesting thing that we can see from the research is the fact that like resilience itself is something that does change over the course of one's life. It mm-hmm. is ever changing constantly. And also that it's a learned skill that they found in a lot of studies specifically with kids that like resilience was a skill picked up from parents and from the adults around them as well. But also in the studies, they found that it could be taught. Like taught in a classroom, even which is yeah, that's quite interesting. really interesting. But it's not just that, like, oh yeah, you can learn it. Maybe I don't know through your parents or something. But it's like, no, like there have actually been researchers who have focused on how can we teach this? Like, how yeah. can we help people learn to be more resilient? And that's that's what I think is really interesting about this field of research, right? Yeah, the study in the New Yorker kind of talked about how these kids. They asked a bunch of teachers, like, okay, well, which kids do you see? out there that have really hard times at home and they could immediately come up with those kids. And then they would ask, okay, of those kids, which ones do you still feel like do really well in school and have a really good time um, and are still like, okay, and seem together, regardless of what is going on in their lives. And so I guess it took them a little bit longer to think of that, but then they were able to, and those were the kids that they followed throughout these studies. Mm. And they were, yeah, long longitudinal studies, um, I think until the kids were about 30 years old. So Mm. that's pretty cool. And what did they find? I just, yeah, that again, it did change over time, that it, it based on, 
if the stressors just became so there were so many over many, many years that your resilience can wane because of that, because geez, like, how do you deal with things just happening over and over again in your life that are so difficult and that, yeah, it can be learned and can be changed over time. Right. And that people who, you know, anytime a bad thing would happen at one point in their life and they would just sort of fall apart and had a really hard time bouncing back from it, that then later in their life, they found that other experiences they would be able to bounce back from. And so that it would kind of change over their life. And so that that was interesting, too. Yeah, definitely. I I think about this a lot because I had a friend um, who I think grew up very similar to me, like in a really nice school in Tucson and had loving parents and stuff. And yet she became a drug addict and died of a heroin overdose when she was 23. So, you know, that I feel like we grew up with similar privilege and I obviously didn't see every single thing that happened in her life all the time, but I still, it was, has always been like a big, question in my life how the two of us diverted so heavily mm-hmm. and i i know that resilience isn't the only factor by any means but it is potentially one well something that seems important to highlight thinking about that example is at least what i've seen in reading resilience theory and research and stuff like that is that resilience it's the way that researchers tend to talk about it is it's not just like a personal trait mm-hmm. you know so it's not just like you personally have resilience or you don't that it also bleeds over into what your context is yeah. you know like do you have resiliency building factors such as a support network you totally. know, or exactly. like an adult in your life who's telling you that they love you or is someone at school telling you that you can succeed yeah. you know that that it's not just about um I it's think not that all like, internal yeah it's, it's not external all external it's not all just you yeah. you know that it is also kind of like this more complex factor that yeah. is mm-hmm. not just an internal trait, but also de- kind of depends on the context that's around you as well. Yeah, absolutely. And whether it's fostering that within you. That's a really good point. Right. Yeah. And and that is like a good way to segue into this next section where we do want to talk about kind of the, the dark side of resilience research or yeah. some caveats here. Yeah. There was a, a really interesting New York Times article that actually the New York, the New Yorker article referenced um, it just talking specifically about caveats of resilience. And it's, it, this was a really interesting quote. It said, it is indistinguishable from classic American bootstrap logic when it is applied to individuals, placing all the burden of success and failure on a person's character. Mm-hmm. I don't exactly agree with that, but it is an interesting thing to think about when so kind of yeah if we look at resilience as like just a character trait yeah and that's it exactly. the same way we look at like kindness or maybe you know discernment or something like that sure. if we look at it just Loyalty, as a character trait, yeah. yeah yeah that then it can bear some uncomfortable resemblance to you know bootstrap oh, theory yeah well i think that what he's what this person is getting at is this idea that when it's applied to other individuals. Mm-hmm. So when we like use it mm. to blame people for whatever has been bad in their life, well, and that's yeah. where it becomes really problematic. And I'm not saying that the researchers are doing this, but unfortunately, because the research has been so promising, a lot of people have been like, wow, yep, this is fact and jumped on it and then kind of turned it into this. Yeah. And specifically, this article gets into the fact that people of color at Yale University, um, there were a bunch of things happening like with racism in Yale 
uh, during the time when this article was written, and that they these students got a lot of backlash for speaking up and being angry about the things that were happening to them. And people were saying like, oh, well, you know, you you go to Yale, you have so much privilege, how can you be sitting there being upset about, you know, these things that are happening kind of thing? And that the New Yorker article is essentially saying that's bullshit. Like the fact that these kids want to say this is not okay and stand up for themselves, that's being shown as like a, an incorrect thing to do or that they don't have resilience because they're not just dealing with it and taking it. Well, what it makes me think of is if I can call back to the beginning of the episode when we were talking about what we thought of originally when you say the mm, word resilience, mm-hmm, is that mm-hmm. for me, actually, for most of my life, when I think of the word resilience, I think of just kind of like battening down the hatches and just yeah. like powering through. Huh. But I like that you brought up, Jace, the idea that it's like something that bends mm, and doesn't break, but back. then comes back. And yeah. I think that's a really, really important distinction to make philosophically and visually i guess as well (laughs) Uh that that it's not just about battening down the hatches and like not making a fuss and not saying anything and not complaining Mm. and not being angry and like keeping the status quo you know that there is the bend there there is the effect there like of course you're going to feel the effects of like this terrible terrible negative thing that's happened and like you should but then it's the process of like coming back from that and bouncing back I mean, yeah. yeah, they were saying essentially just, yeah, well, millennials, you know, they're not resilient because they've been given the honorary prize or whatever. <laughs> they're and ca- they're uh, calling us on our racism. It, and well, so exactly. Not, no, exactly. Resilient. Which is right. some like, mm-hmm. okay, boomer bullshit. Well, <laughs> yeah. 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 And I think that that's sort of the point. The other point of that article was that, you know, someone can look and go, oh, you're complaining. You're not resilient. That means you're not going to be successful. You need to get your shit together. And if you actually look at it a little bit differently, it's like actually the courage it takes to speak up about something yeah. shows resiliency. Like being able to do that is the resilient thing, not just taking it lying down and not saying something. So again, I think that the kind of takeaway message here is just that this is something people can kind of use for bad. Like they can, it can be used as a way just like I think the whole um, power of positive thinking movement of course, has yeah. done, yeah. right? Where it kind of makes anything, it, it like makes hardship in your life your own fault. Mm-hmm. And while maybe that could be empowering for a person when applying it to themselves, it's really shitty when you're then applying that to someone else, yeah. right? And saying, well, this is your own fault because you didn't believe it and receive it and achieve it enough. <laughs> or it's your own fault because you're not resilient enough yeah. or, or huh. whatever. Yeah. Um, I did want to read this quote, actually, from Maria Konnikova, who's the one who wrote the New Yorker article that we that kind of started this whole mm-hmm. train. Uh, she says, in recent years, we've taken to using the term sloppily, but our sloppy usage doesn't mean that it hasn't been usefully and precisely defined. It's time we invest the time and energy to understand what resilience really means. So she's basically making the point of like, yes, people are using this as a shitty thing. But that doesn't mean we have to abandon the whole thing. Yeah. You know, because it, it is something that's being researched and has shown a lot of promise. So, um, yeah. And, and also, I did want to mention real quick um, I'm blanking on her first name right now, but uh, Duckworth. Angela Duckworth. Name. Angela Duckworth. Thank yeah. you. Uh, Angela Duckworth, who does a lot of research on grit. Mm. Um, is, oh, yeah. What, what's the difference there? 
basically well, better with cheese <clears throat> yeah so Ooh, i really want some grits now yeah that, that sounds, sounds really tasty i do love grits I, I, yeah. yeah um i don't know <laughs> so basically resiliency is basically the ability to bounce back from a traumatic thing and grit is basically um sticking through something even when it's hard so it's hmm. like they're related interesting but a but little not bit quite different. the same thing like yeah grits also called quote stick to huh um and it's also one of these things that in research has been shown to be really promising with students and things like that. But again, there's this dark side of it where some schools in California are actually now like putting it, putting grit tests on their standardized tests and what? stuff. And making what this, yeah, because it's been shown to be this measure of success. And so they're doing awful shit. And actually Angela Duckworth has spoken out about like, that's not what this is for. Like, yes, include this in your curriculum to teach kids how to be gritty, but do not test on this. Like, this is not what this how, is but about. How do, you, how do you even, how do you even, oh, how do you even? Well, she's got a well, test on her website you can take. No, yeah. no, that's great. But I just mean, like, how do you put that onto a standardized test? You, you do that, those sorts of questions. Like, you do like that's a psychological evaluation mm, for grit. Yeah. That's very strange. I think it's actually hugely problematic yeah. To, yeah. to use it as a testing factor Rather yeah, than just something to teach and that you're going to get a them. grade on it? Are you kidding me? Like what? Or it determines what schools well, yeah. you could get into right. or something. It's, yeah, it's, no, I, I don't like that at all. There's a dark side to all of this, definitely. But and it sucks because both things in that research can be very useful when applied well. When applied well, and I think one of the things we say a lot on our show is take these things and apply them for yourself. Mm -hmm. Don't weaponize them against other people. Please don't. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Please don't. Um, And yeah, we just wanted to have a special consideration for people of color regarding all of this and people in specific situations, again, maybe outside of the ones that the three of us live in were, you know, white passing all of us. And we definitely grew up in a very like specific way that maybe was a lot easier than other people's, uh, you know, challenges. And so I do think that given all of this, and there has been some research out there regarding like, you know, people in South Africa or Somalia or other places, refugees, you know, that these things are not necessarily measured in the same way. Mm-hmm. And so that is something to think about. And and people who are people who are neurodivergent, any of those, it may apply in some other capacity. So just to, to be aware just of that as well. That there's the research isn't really doing it's a good really job not, of studying those populations. No, and exactly. So it's it's yeah. like, you know, kids here in America or kids like in right. yeah, Europe or whatever. Maybe right. a different scale like, of resiliency. Exactly. Maybe exactly. some that do have uh, challenges and hardships, but there are different scales here. So right. definitely think about that because this isn't going to apply to everyone by any means. Well, I really liked, you know, when we interviewed Ruby Bowie, mm-hmm. just her saying very plainly that it's like people who are neurodivergent or who have mental illness or mental differences like already are resilient, Yeah, you know? And I think that that's also part of the stigma around, around mental health is seeing it also as a personal failing, right? Mm. You know, you're depressed and you couldn't get under control. And so you're not resilient. Yeah, exactly. And that's, that's the scary part of this word to me is Mm. that maybe somebody, you know, wouldn't find themselves to be resilient simply because, depression is in their life at all times. And so does that mean that I'm not resilient? Right. Does it mean that it's your fault because you you don't have high resilience, which is not necessarily the case. I really liked that. um, Actually, I was reading. So positivepsychology.com specifically tackles resiliency. And they just say straight out, like, we're just going to start saying most people are resilient. Mm -hmm. It's not 
yeah. a special thing. Yeah. It's not right. this like totally. special glittery thing that you have to aspire to. It's like most people are resilient and have resilience. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I like coming at it from that perspective as well. Yeah. 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 And I think that, yeah, the way, so we were going to get into what are some ways that you can build more resilience in your own life. But yeah, I think that's a great place to start from is just that like, we're all resilient and just in the same way that, you know, we all have whatever, we all have muscles, we all have a brain. Those are things that we can train to mm-hmm. be a little bit stronger. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's not like you don't have them. It's not yeah. this on or off. It's not just you are resilient or you're not. It's like, no, okay, this is a thing we all have. How can we get a little better at it? How sure. can we help ourselves to, you know, weather things that happen in our lives as best as we can? Yeah. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. So with that, you want to get started on how we can learn to be more resilient? Let's do it. Yeah, so we found this great list inside Greater Good Magazine. The greater Good. The greater Good. <laughs> uh, which is published by UC Berkeley, actually. Okay. Um, so they have a list of five suggestions for practices to help build resiliency. Um, so the first one is what they call changing the narrative. So before we dive into exactly what that entails, we need to talk about rumination. Rumination. What do y'all know about rumination? Well, I mean, I know that rumination is when you think over all the like shitty things that have happened and all the things you're upset about or all the things you've done wrong or that. That's what I know it is. Mm -hmm. Is that that accurate? (laughs) Yeah, I know that it happens with people who have PTSD or OCD Mm. because Mm -hmm. a very good friend of mine uh, ruminates and has both of those things as well. Right, right. Survivor of PTSD. So it's what cows do. That's where it comes from. Oh, really? When they, like... Yeah, when ruminants. They pick up their food and when they, they eat say it like again? that an animal is a ruminant, that's really? what it means is that, you know, like a cow, they they eat the grass, they chew it up in their mouth, they swallow it, and then it comes back up again later and then they chew on it again. Mm-hmm. That's where that comes from. Fascinating. Whoa. Yeah, rumination. Wow. Uh, sometimes my dog ruminates. Ew. His food. <laughs> oh, <Gross>. Freddy. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I don't think he's meant to be ruminating. Yeah, I don't think he's no. supposed to be. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, but gross. I've definitely seen Henry do the same thing. Yeah. Oh, animals are gross, <laughs> even though we love them. We're, we're animals. <laughs> so. Um, so, yeah, but as far as it applies to humans, uh, that, yeah, it's the process of, you know, repetitively or endlessly, you can be really reliving an event in your head. You can be rehashing a conversation. You can have repetitive thoughts. Um, often it's unproductive thoughts as well. So it's kind of different from like processing and thinking about something and working it out. Often it's kind of unproductive, just like rehashing and reprocessing, rechewing as it were of something in your head. Often it can be a symptom of PTSD, OCD, things like that. But even outside of that, you know, just, you know, your normal average everyday person will still have rumination, you know, Mm -hmm. rumination happens. Um, And so definitely if you've experienced some trauma or some difficult times or things are extra stressful for you right now, it can be really easy to get into that mode of just thinking about it constantly. 
which I think makes sense because, you know, we're kind of like the way that our brains work is that it's kind of like this radar system that's constantly scanning the landscape, trying to see if anything that's going to hurt us is coming down the pipe, essentially. And so sometimes that instinct that our brains have causes us to constantly have to like think about a situation. I've seen this a lot with clients, like, you know, if their partner is going out for a date for the first time, they're like, I just can't stop thinking about what's going to happen or how is it going to be when they get home or is it going to go terrible or is it going to go good or how am I going to feel? And like just constantly thinking about that and just ruminating on it. Um, So uh, they found, I mean, these, and the best thing about these lists is like all these things are research backed, Um, Mm -hmm. but there's research that found that specifically rumination can be combated by expressive writing. So in other words, free writing about a specific topic, the topic that's on your mind for at least 20 minutes. There's a lot of other other research that talks about how 20 to 25 minutes is kind of like this magical amount of time when it comes to your brain, you know, and like how it processes things and your focus and things like that. Um, And so there's a 1988 study that found that participants who practiced... 32 years. I know, I know, a long time ago. Mm -hmm. uh, But they found that participants who practiced expressive writing for four days were healthier six weeks later and still happier even three months later as well. Wow, yeah. for just four days. Yeah. 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 Anytime studies find stuff like that where the effects last yeah. too, that aren't just like right when you study it, that's cool. Is, is cool. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so there's some theories about why this this works. I mean, people theorize that like writing and doing kind of expressive exploratory writing where you're really getting into your deepest thoughts and feelings about this particular topic it forces you to not only get those thoughts outside of your head, like it's literally the act of all this stuff bouncing around in my brain. Now I put it down on the page and it forces you to kind of confront and organize each idea one at a time and kind of like reframe it all outside of you Mm -hmm. and help you to kind of process a struggle or a stressor or a trauma in maybe a different way than what's going on just kind of internally. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've heard before of, sort of a a thinking exercise where if you think about the thoughts in your head as like you close your eyes and you visualize them Mm. and it can feel like they're just like whizzing by, like they're spinning around you. And there's sort of... It always feels like a beehive to me. mm, Interesting, yeah. Yeah. My little thought bees. (laughs) Mine's like a a film strip roll that goes by really fast. Um, But anyway, is just consciously, specifically thinking of that slowing down and looking at each piece individually and, you know, putting it away or something like like that. And I have found though, that for me, writing stuff down like this is, um, probably the best way to do that. It's just, even if I'm in a place where I can't do that, I will try sometimes to do this visualization thing of like, take each thing. And I think of like putting it in a box and setting it aside, you know, like it's still there if I need it, but I'm going to set it aside. It doesn't, I don't have to be thinking about it right now. Things like that. But I do find that idea of just like writing something down, it's like it locks it in time. Mm. So it can't just be buzzing around. It's like now it's trapped physically. So it's a little more in control. Um, There's also uh, something called Finding Silver Linings, which is also listed on the Berkeley site in the the Greater Good uh, (laughs) magazine. And this is an exercise that invites you to call to mind an upsetting experience and then try to list three positive things about it. So for example, you might reflect on fighting with a friend 
and how that brought some important issues out into the open. And I think this one's great when applied to partners too, yeah, to applied I mean, to our romantic relationships. Um, that you know, it allowed you to learn something about their point of view. Maybe it sucks that it had to be a fight that got you there, but it's like, hey, that that is still a positive thing. Totally. You know? uh, in a 2014 study. They found that doing this practice daily for three weeks helped participants become more engaged with life afterward. It decreased their pessimism over time. Uh, and it wasn't true for group members who just wrote about them, but it was true for ones who wrote about it and, um, you know, tried to come up with these positive things that that sort of decreased pessimism and made them, uh, in some cases, even less depressed. Wow. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, the effects did wear off after two months, uh, suggesting that it is something we have to do regularly, that mm. it's not just like a one-time fix. And okay, not now like I don't have to worry about the one that. one time for the one event. Yeah. And then, yeah, that yeah. makes sense. Yeah. And I think that sometimes people can be very resistant to these types of things of like, what? well, we'll, we'll look for the silver lining. What's mm. the good thing that happened in this? And it's just like, no, I'm upset. Fuck you. Yeah. Uh, and, and I get yeah. that. And I think that's a very valid feeling too. But again... This isn't something for us to weaponize against other people, but for yourself, if you're able to, you know, even if the positive thing is like, well, I got to eat some chocolate cake because I was upset and I <laughs> ate some chocolate cake. Hey, that's know. something. No, <laughs> you know, for sure. Even if it just seems like this is ridiculous that this is my silver lining, it still helps to, but it, and to it's try something, to think that way. Yeah, and when writing it down, it's something that you can potentially go back to. Mm-hmm. I know, like, when I came to China again the second time, like, my internet didn't work and I was really upset about a lot of things. Mm -hmm. And then I like wrote down like, you know, check yourself before you wreck yourself kind of thing, because (laughs) it is important to like realize the good that you have in Mm -hmm. moments that are potentially really challenging right then Mm -hmm. that you can kind of look at the bigger picture. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, This next one is a little scary. Face your fears uh, definitely, uh, I don't know, exposure therapy. I've always been like, what? Like, really? Exposure therapy? But I, that this is the basically the practice of exposing yourself little by little to the things that scare you, either self-directed or with the help of a professional. I'd say maybe the health, help of a professional would be a good thing in well, it, these it instances. Well, it really kind of depends on the scale, right? Okay. Yeah. Because if it's yeah. something like... You know, oh, I feel a little bit scared about public speaking. Sure. You know, was the example they gave in the article versus I have like a extreme fear of spiders yeah. to the point where I, you know, like lock up and have like a full trauma response. It's like maybe that's what the help of a professional, you know, I think it kind of depends on the the scale. That's yeah. true. Yeah. Of yeah. What you're absolutely. Going yeah. 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 Absolutely. So there have been several studies since the 80s um, that have found exposure therapy to be really effective, especially for things like PTSD. And again, right. PTSD, I'd be like, yikes, I don't know. But I guess, I guess, yeah, this is a good thing and that's fine. But well, for PTSD, I would worry that that would be very traumatic. Well, again, this is with professionals exactly. guiding this and helping yeah. us. I actually, uh, on one of my flights a few months ago, I was flying back from Japan to the U.S. And I was seated next to a guy and we got talking and he works for a nonprofit that specifically uses tech to help people in basically like war-torn countries. Oh, wow. Um, And one of the things that they do is specifically using VR as a way of this type of exposure therapy for children in countries who have PTSD from this. And using VR as a way to essentially like in a very controlled environment allow the reliving 
of certain things, or, you know, of certain stimulus to a certain extent, but it's in control because it's VR, right? Yeah. You, you know, you can turn VR it off. VR is pretty scary, though. They can, and I've, <laughs> it can be. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, and I think it's it's super interesting, though. Yeah. He's, he's like, yeah, it's not something a lot of people think of when you think of, like, humanitarian work, that it involves, mm. like, cryptocurrency and VR and stuff yeah. like that. But, well, but it is, it has been shown to be very powerful. And, I thought yeah. you were going to say that, like, there was a guy exposing himself to a sphere of flying on the flight, oh. and that was what was happening, and <laughs> no. it was like, yikes. No, yeah. but, but that is also an example of sure. you know exposure therapy on just a day to day basis. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to be. It doesn't all have to be about suffering from huge trauma. This That's can also true. just be about your fear of talking to strangers yeah. or your fear of disclosing your STI status. Yeah. Or right. right? There's like all sorts of things that this could apply to. Right. Yeah. So I have like I have like two examples from my personal life mm. of this kind of like facing your fears in order to gain more resiliency slash some exposure therapy. There's like the high stakes one and the low stakes one, you know, okay. low stakes yeah. being uh, just that for years I've been learning Japanese and had like this extreme fear of actually speaking it really mm-hmm. quite honestly, like just, yeah, you wouldn't know this, you wouldn't ladies know this and, now, but yeah, everyone, because well, but I was convinced because most of my language learning growing up, like I, I just didn't get good training in speaking these mm-hmm. languages. And so I was just convinced that I was just bad when it came to the speaking portion of learning languages. I was good at reading and writing and then bad at the speaking portion. And I was just like really scared of having to. And so for me, my kind of self-directed exposure to that fear was to do things like, okay, I'm going to book like a conversation lesson with a tutor that's only like 15 minutes long. <laughs> and then I just have to live through 15 minutes and then it's going to be okay. Interesting. And doing that over enough time and gradually increasing the amount of time until eventually then it's super comfortable. Well, Japanese is never super comfortable. Never mind. <laughs> but it's more comfortable. <laughs> Fairly comfortable. To speak for long periods of time. And it's really transformed my sense of confidence in the language and my skill and stuff like that. So that's kind of like the ho-hum day-to-day mm-hmm. kind of example of this. But the more serious example is like my own work in therapy with my own PTSD. There's a lot of types of therapy um, that kind of take advantage of this exposure effect. You know, whether is literally something like, I mean, I think I've seen a video of people with arachnophobia using VR mm-hmm. also actually yeah, to help too. Yeah. T- tackle that. Um, or often a lot of exposure therapy is just about getting you more comfortable with just thinking about the thing. And that like the thought of what happened doesn't spin you out into like Mm -hmm. a full PTSD response. And it's like kind of walking you through very gently kind of coming back to the thing and even thinking about it or talking about it a little bit and just kind of slowly over time making it feel a little bit more normalized. Um, And so, so yeah, I mean, I would say that as far as that goes... I don't know. I feel like it helped it helped <laughs> yeah. my Japanese resiliency no, and my trauma resiliency. That's good. All right. The third thing on this list now, after changing the narrative uh, and facing your fears, is to practice self-compassion. Yeah. Also challenging. Also yeah. extremely challenging. I struggle my with this one a lot. Yeah. So when tough shit happens in life, it's really easy to feel lonely to feel mm-hmm. like you're the only person going through it or feel like you're struggling alone. Also to have feelings like shame or anger or frustration, or sometimes those things can all be self-directed as well. And so the idea behind this is that self-compassion self-compassion can combat these feelings 
and also make it just a little bit easy, a little bit easier to weather the hard times. So in one study, there were participants that were in an eight-week mindful self-compassion program, and they reported having more mindfulness and life satisfaction with lower depression, lower anxiety, and lower stress afterward compared to people who didn't be- participate. And the interesting thing is that the benefits of that lasted up to an entire year. That's great. Hmm. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah. So, so in terms of a way that you can do this yourself, like you can do that kind of exercise for yourself. This is the self-compassion break uh, or a counterspell, <laughs> as we like to call it, because <laughs> of the Relationship Anarchy Manifesto. Yeah. Uh, okay. So is step one, without judgment or analysis, notice what you're feeling. So, for example, I'm feeling sad or I'm suffering right now. This is painful. This is stressful, right? Just, just kind of notice what it is. And then step two is remind yourself that you're not alone. Many others have suffered in this way, or we all struggle, right? Everybody poops. I mean, everybody, <laughs> everybody suffers. Yes. Right? There are other people who have gone through something like this. And then step three is to give yourself kindness. So put your hand on your chest or hug yourself or some other kind of self-soothing and say, may I be peaceful? May I be patient? May I go easy on myself? And that's it. Super simple. What do we think? Have you ever done anything like this? Like this type no. of uh, self-soothing <laughs> oh, exercise? Oh, no, you haven't, Emily? <laughs> Probably not. Oh, I definitely have. Mm. Yeah. Well, I mean, this is this is very similar to kind of some metta meditation mm. in, you know, like metta is like a loving kindness meditation, but you always start with yourself. Oh, interesting. Is the thing. Like before you... I like that was more external. No, but before you can offer metta to anybody else, like you start with yourself. That's very much a foundational part of the practice and usually like the hardest one. <laughs> yeah. 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 Oh, for sure. Like, totally. Usually the, the most, most difficult one. Mm-hmm. But I think that there's something to this that like, when you do this, it can feel kind of fake mm. in the moment, but I mm. think that's okay. Like, I think it's okay just kind of taking a break and just getting into that space and just saying these kind of things to yourself. Like, eventually with time and repetition, like, it does help. It does help to ease things a little bit. It does help, like, help so that, like, even if you feel like everyone else is attacking you or everyone else is, is dragging mm. you down, that you're not also doing that to yourself at the same yeah, time. that's good. Yeah, and I, I think... Well, so a visualization for this one, like a a visual metaphor, I don't know what I'm trying to say, uh, a metaphor for this one that I've heard before that that really resonated with me was, if you think about sometimes the negative things that you'll say to yourself, Mm -hmm. and that who we're saying this to is kind of this inner child part of ourselves. And essentially is to imagine, say, if you were in a group of people, and there was a child there, if you imagined the other people in that group saying the things you say to yourself, to your inner child, to that child, how, how mad you would be, how sure. much you would be like, what the hell is wrong with you people? Like, stop that. Yeah. Right. That you would come in and stand up and be like, what's wrong with you? And that yet we do that to ourselves. We do that to our own inner child. And so to kind of put that in perspective of like, Hey, let's, let's not beat up on this, you know, this inner part of ourselves. Yeah, Totally. Something I also really like about this exercise is the practice of reminding yourself that you're not alone. Um, Mm. Reminding yourself that, you know, I'm not the first person to go through this. Mm. Chances are you're not. It's actually very rare that you would be the first person to go through whatever struggle you're going through or whatever stress you're going through. And I like that not as a, 
not as a means to try to minimize what you're going through or discard what you're going through. But again, just as kind of a bolstering effect of like, oh, yeah, I'm not alone in this. There's other people, even other people that I know, who've also gone through this thing that I'm going through right now, whether it's loss of a job or death or a breakup or something like that. Mm -hmm. So there is a caveat to all this. Just don't interpret this one as us saying that you just need self-compassion in order to like get through a shitty situation and be complacent. Um, instead, do things like take action, speak up, dump the dick. I don't know. <laughs> Asshole, whomever. Fight the man. Yeah. Um, and be kind to yourself at the same time, though, with all of this. Because yeah. that is important. And something, yeah, that's very challenging for me. I know, like, when you were talking about that, I was getting teared up. So, Oh, why? Just something I can be better at. Yeah, maybe we'll we'll all do some self compassion exercises yeah. after this. Okay, that sounds yeah. great. I think the other the other caveat here is that this also isn't saying that you have to you know let let yourself off the hook for doing anything bad. It's like mm-hmm. no, you could still acknowledge like yes, I did screw that up. Sure, like, you know I I screwed that up. I was mean. I was selfish. I was dishonest. You know whatever it is, but being compassionate at the same time mm-hmm. like by being kind to yourself isn't doesn't mean you're just going to go do those things again like there's a difference between self-compassion and just saying like oh whatever i don't need to care so i also want to point out that little caveat there for sure for a long time now we've been fans of adamandeve.com for getting sex toys or lingerie or accessories things like that it's just a fantastic resource with a huge selection And now, not only do we have a fantastic offer, but we also have a promo code that will work on adammail.com and evestoys.com, which are their sites specifically for LGBTQ audiences. And our code is fantastic. It's 50% off of almost any item in the store and free discreet shipping when you use our code MULTI. Yes, we love adamandeve.com and have for years. They are our oldest and longest sponsor, and they just keep on giving great gifts to us and to our listeners. You can bring more pleasure and satisfaction into your bedroom by going to adamandeve.com, adammail.com, or evestoys.com and select any one item. It can be, you know, an adventurous new toy or anything you desire, something fun, something sexy, whatever sounds good. So just enter offer code MULTI at checkout and you'll get 50% off almost any item plus free shipping. That's MULTI, M-U-L-T-I at adamandeve.com, adammail.com or evestoys.com. This is an exclusive offer that is specific to this podcast and it's better than any offer that is currently available on their site. So again, use code MULTI to get you not just the 50% discount, but also the 100% free shipping. Code M-U-L-T-I. Definitely. So let's keep going through this list. So our first one was changing the narrative. Second was facing your fears. This last one was practicing self-compassion. And now the next one on this list is meditation. And now we're not going to spend a ton of time on this, but we have just, a whole episode about it. So yeah, kind of. <laughs> yeah. Just know that there's a huge body of research that uh, shows the benefits of meditation, especially the benefits of meditation regarding resiliency, your ability to bounce back from difficult things or stressful things. Um, the main takeaway I want people to have is because uh, I feel like now in 2019 or 2020 now that mm-hmm. it is that as soon as you say the word meditation, people are already like, oh, yeah, whatever. Like I, ha- I had the right. Headspace app for, you know, two months and then never did right. it. And yada, yada, yeah, yada, right. yada. Um, it's just that 
do your research, read books, join a class, like find the technique that works for you. It doesn't necessarily have to look like mm-hmm. sitting on a mat for half an hour every morning. Like it doesn't have to look like that. It doesn't even have to look like a, a regular meditation practice, honestly. Like it can just look like some kind of meditation techniques or breathing techniques that you do during the day or a meditative visualization that you do during the day. Just like go and find what works for you. I want to challenge people on this one, actually, a little bit here. I think that meditation, I think, is very misunderstood. And I think the reason it's so misunderstood is capitalism. (laughs) I would agree with that. (laughs) I think that the reason why it's so misunderstood is because, like, someone someone a while ago in one of our uh, Patreon discussion groups talked about a study showing that, you know, some percentage of people find they're more stressed after meditating instead of less. Interesting. And it's like, oh, see, meditation's not for everybody. And I want to challenge that because meditation, I, my understanding of meditation through the thousands and thousands of years that it's been a thing, meditation has never been about relaxing Mm. until capitalism tried to sell it. Interesting. Like until you're trying to sell an app, you're trying to sell a course. Meditation. Until you're trying to sell, like here's the escape from like the, your, your overworked, like right. horrible, awful, like right. busy life. Right. In the same way that we sell TV or film or video games Goop. or Goop. fashion or whatever. Because <laughs> well, yeah. then it becomes part of the whole wellness industry that's selling us the same sure, thing. Sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It is that. Yeah. Right. That, we, that it's been, being sold as an escape. And I would say that actually meditation is the opposite. Like meditation takes a lot of courage because the it's about sitting and being aware of your thoughts, mm-hmm. not escaping from them. Mm-hmm. And I think people really don't get that part of it. And I think the best metaphor would be if you did a study that said, oh, well, you know, 80% of people found that they were sore after exercising. So clearly <laughs> exercising doesn't work for everybody. Uh, and I think it's like, that that's, no shit. That it's more about if you think of it a little bit more like an exercise, mm-hmm. it's not about getting away from all your thoughts. It's about becoming more aware of them. And over time, becoming more comfortable and, you know, being able to better identify your thoughts as they're happening yeah. so that then you can do all these other things we talk about, right? Okay. Doing these different interventions or noticing, oh, I'm I'm beating up on myself right now. I should, you know, be compassionate to myself or, oh, I'm spiraling into this. I should step out of it. That meditation is more like training the muscles of becoming aware of your own mind of what's going on. Anyway, there was my talk on meditation. I love that. No, I would agree with that because, because yeah, I don't, I don't got anything to add to that. Just props. Yeah. So, <laughs> damn the man. Meditate. Just props. Yeah. Don't expect to be super relaxed after meditation. <laughs> no. Right, that's not the point. And that, that, especially when you do it for like four days in a room for an hour and a half a right. time. Right. <laughs> oh boy. But yeah. Well, I think sometimes people beat themselves up. They're like, I tried meditating right. and I didn't empty my mind and I didn't. You feel know, great didn't feel great yeah. afterward. And it's like, no, it's not the point. It's yeah. just like working out. It's a like, practice. I was sore afterward. Oh, I must have screwed up. You know, it's like, no, yeah, that's how it works. Yeah. It, you know, yeah. it's going to be challenging. Okay. So the next one is going to be cultivating forgiveness. This is a interesting one as well. Also challenging. Uh, so forgiveness practices are out there. There is 
a thing called the nine steps to forgiveness and the eight essentials when forgiving. You can look these both up. Yes. So they basically just offer a list of guidelines to follow. In both cases, you're going to begin clearly acknowledging what happened, including how it feels and how it's affecting your life right now. And then you make this commitment to forgive, which means letting go of resentment and ill will for your own sake. And forgiveness doesn't necessarily mean letting the offender off the hook or even reconciling with them, but it is kind of letting go of this resentment, which is a powerful thing in and of itself. Maybe being able to be resentful is also powerful, but I think over time, I don't know. There's not very many people that I hold grudges for. Maybe... A couple, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, this is the hard thing is I feel like this starts to run also into a language issue. Mm. So first of all, I I do think that forgiveness as a concept is not very prioritized in our culture, right? It's not very valued in our culture right now um, for probably some justifiable reasons. But interesting, this starts to run into a language issue where there's so many different ways that forgiveness can look like letting go of resentment, like no longer harboring ill will. Or people interpret it to mean that it does mean letting someone off the hook or reconciling Mm. with them or we all pretend like it never happened. Mm -hmm. And some of those are good things. Some of those are bad things, depending on the situation. Like there may be some situations in your life, maybe in your romantic partnership or partnerships where it's like, you know, Mm -hmm. I do let you off the hook. And we agree like, okay, let's just kind of continue forward with some compassion and grace and kind of pretend that this never happened. If it's like a small thing Mm -hmm. versus some situations where you shouldn't let somebody off the hook, but maybe it is beneficial for you to come to a place eventually of healing and letting go of ill will and resentment and stuff like that. But I just think that right now forgiveness as a concept, because so many people equate it with, oh, like automatically means that you know, you just pretend that everything's fine or automatically means you have to reconcile with the person who abused you or whatever. When it's like forgiveness, I think can mean different things and fit into different situations differently. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Um, Maybe even forgiving yourself for the, you know, you being a part of the situation at all kind of thing. That's very powerful in and of itself as well. Definitely. Yeah. And so I I have a friend that I grew up with um, who we grew up together in church and Long story short, like basically not a few years after I left church, it came out that she was basically being like groomed and abused by our youth pastor. Wow. Um, No, really terrible. And then of course the way that the Christian church reacted to it was also really terrible. Like did not center her or her experience or anything like that. Like kind of treated her as complicit. And so she spent several, several years in all kinds of different therapy, intensive therapy, getting over this, but she's also a really wonderful writer and she writes about it publicly and she has, you know, she has some like really, really amazing things to say on the topic of forgiveness because for her, again, growing up in the Christian church and the Christian church is so much like forgive, 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 you know, we're forgiven mm-hmm. by God or by Christ. And so you need to forgive mm-hmm. anyone else and her being like, no, nah, this is bullshit. Like, yeah. you know, I can't just pretend like nothing happened. But for her, the process of forgiveness, she ties it to this idea of like, when you forgive someone, it's like you're forgiving their debt, right? Someone owes you a bunch of money and you decide to forgive their debt. But before you can forgive the debt, sometimes it's going to take time to actually tally up how, what the debt is. Interesting. And sometimes that's not immediately clear to you when you're a week out from someone hurting you or six months out from someone hurting you or five years out from someone hurting you. It's like what the debt actually is changes yeah. to a certain extent. And so the process of forgiveness of being able to let go of that resentment is also going to change over time, which I thought was really interesting that it's, it's, I think that forgiveness is not just this like one and done kind of thing that it, it's this more complex fluid process. 
in my opinion. Yeah. yeah. I don't know well, what y'all think. Yeah, yeah, I love that. Well, and I think that something to focus on here is that the forgiveness, the the point of this and the reason why it's on this list is about is about yourself, is making your experience less bad yeah. or, or ideally eventually good. And it's not about like whether or not that person should be punished or whether or not you should leave that person if this is a bad relationship or whatever it is. It's not about that. It's about your experience. And so in the research on this one, the testing is basically doing this type of forgiveness versus the other alternatives, which is ruminating, like mm. we talked about before, yeah. like ruminating on negative feelings or just repressing them, yeah. and like not acknowledging them at all. And they found that cultivating compassion led the participants to report more empathy, more positive emotions, and more feelings of control, which I think is interesting because I think also sometimes yeah, thinking, control. Oh, I just gotta forgive them seems uh, like, oh, well, I'm giving up all my control. power or control. And interesting. That, that actually they found more control. And so that there is about, in this case, you know, the victims, this is the outcome for them is more positive emotions, more feeling of control, regardless of how we feel about the offenders here. Yeah. I mean, right? at least then you have your control of your emotions regarding the, mm -hmm. the thing that happened or mm -hmm. just, yeah, how you view it in general. It's right. like, I have control over what I think of the situation and how it's going to affect my life. Right. So just kind of that, that this is about how to make your experience less, Better. less awful yeah. on a day-to-day -day basis after something bad has happened rather than about whether or not someone. that person should be punished or whether or not you should stay with this person or, right. And there's, that's, I think that's an important distinction to make here. And it goes along with kind of what Dedeker was talking about too. Yeah. yeah. Let's review the list. Let's. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. So again, our list of five ways to gain more resiliency in your life, changing the narrative, things like expressive writing, finding silver linings, uh, facing your fears, exposing yourself little by little to the things that scare you, practicing self-compassion, meditation and mindfulness, and cultivating forgiveness. Yeah. This Good list. list. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Good things for every everyday life not just like this practice but cultivating forgiveness just in your life and mm -hmm. i think meditating and yeah stuff like that facing your fears yeah not just for resilience but for other moments in your life as well yeah i think that something else that's interesting about this is about you know how do we measure what success is and in these I studies no idea. in these studies <laughs> it's like how well do the kids do in school mm. right or you know, do kids turn to drugs and violence or exactly, not, yeah. right? They, there's, they find some sort of metric. But I think that as, as human beings, we're a lot more nuanced than that. There's a lot more options. It kind of like we talked about in that earlier article about is resiliency speaking up about mm -hmm. something bad that's happening or is resiliency not needing to whine about it, right? Like these sorts of questions where it's not just like this obvious, clear, oh, well, this is good and this is bad. And so I think that something with all of this to focus on for ourselves is, you know, what does our success quote look like, mm -hmm. right? What is that? And focusing on that, like, so for you, resiliency might not have to mean starting a company and doing something or getting good grades and going and getting a PhD or something, right? It doesn't, those, that doesn't have to be success for you, Yeah. right? that it can be, you know, just feeling good on a daily basis or having good positive relationships or, you know, 
making your life be one that's surrounded by positive and good people, right? There's lots of different ways that your success could look. And I think it's just worth spending a little time thinking about that too. Yeah. Right. Not using someone else's, you know, someone else's idea of what success is. Sure. Yeah. And so we want to close with a similar, you know, refrain that we've uh, had on previous episodes, which is just don't weaponize this shit. (laughs) You know, don't don't use the concept of resiliency to excuse bad policy or bad behavior. You know, these are tools that can be really powerful when learned, when applied to your own life, when applied to your own struggle. Um, don't use it as a tool to be an ass to your partners <laughs> and the people you love. Don't call them out on being like not resilient people and yeah, yada, yada, yada. Nice. Just like Emily said, check yourself before you wreck yourself. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So we are going to talk in the bonus about a couple of different resiliency quizzes out there. Some of them solid, some of them more dubious. <laughs> Y'all um, were like, I have skepticism <laughs> about this. <laughs> but it is interesting. Yes. Yeah. So you can find more about that if you listen to our bonus episode. So we want to hear what you think about all of this. Do you feel like you're a super resilient person? Do you feel like you have gained resilience over the years? I think I'm most interested in yeah, that. Has absolutely. It Has, Has it, it changed? Has it changed? Exactly. Yeah. So we want to hear about all of those things. And the best place to share your thoughts with other listeners is on this episode's discussion thread in our private Facebook group or Discord chat. You can get access to these groups and join our exclusive community by going to patreon.com slash multiamory. In addition, you can share with us publicly on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. You can email us at info at multiamory.com. Leave us a voicemail at 678-M-U-L-T-I-05. Or you can leave us a voice message on Facebook. Multiamory is created and produced by Jace Lindgren, Dedeker Winston, and me, Emily Matlack. Our episodes are edited by Mauricio Balvanera. Our social media wizard is Will McMillan. Our production assistants are Rachel Shenowark and Carson Collins. Our theme song is Forms I Know I Did by Josh and Anand from the Fractal Cave EP. The full transcript is available on this episode's page on multiamory.com. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.